Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I'm your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with my good friend, Dave Mawinney, Executive Director of the Swartz Center for Entrepreneurship and Executive Director of the Donald H. Jones Center for Entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon. Dave holds his MBA with distinction from Carnegie Mellon University and has his BS in physics from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Dave is a serial entrepreneur having started Premier Health Exchange, which was acquired by Metabuy, Hawk Medical acquired by McKesson, and Industry.net, which was merged with AT&T Business Network. He went on to be co-founder and CEO of Mspoke, an internet content and advertising recommendation engine that was acquired by LinkedIn in 2010. So he is one of the premier leaders of entrepreneurship within our major universities in this country. And we talk often, and he shares his wisdom with as an advisor with many startups. So he's here talking with us today, which is fantastic. There's one question that he asks every VC who comes and speaks at Carnegie Mellon, which is if you could only give one piece of advice, and there are many pieces you could give, but only one, what would you give? So stay tuned to this episode to learn the answer to that question. Please enjoy my conversation with Dave Mawinney. Welcome, Dave, to Fast Frontiers. So excited to have you on the podcast at last. Uh, thank you, Tim. It's such a good good to see you again. Uh, COVID's kept us apart, uh, but I'm looking forward to, to seeing you again soon. Absolutely. Uh, so am I. It will be soon. So you are probably one of the, not one of, the, the top person working in a university in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. the Swartz Center at Carnegie Mellon. I'd rank you number one in the country in terms of the folks I know and the, and the people that are, you know, having a real impact. And I think a lot of it is probably because of your background first as a multi-time entrepreneur. I don't know if you want to call yourself a serial entrepreneur that, you know, that. <laughs> yeah. My wife says I can't keep a job, but serial entrepreneur. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. So what, what's it, can you just, you know, take us through kind of what's it like and what was that transition? Like, what do you bring to the table going from that entrepreneur, fast growth startup environment to the university environment? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question, Tim, and I appreciate you asking. You know, I, I started five different companies, sold companies to LinkedIn, to Morgan Stanley, to McKesson. I've been a partner in a corporate venture capital firm. So I, I've been lucky enough to sit at the table uh, in a 360 degree fashion. Um, and and uh, I would say that I did not approach coming to Carnegie Mellon as taking a sleepy academic job. In fact, I approached it as a startup, right? And uh, I, I was reluctant to do it when they asked me uh, because I saw myself, my self-image as an entrepreneur. Uh, but then I realized that, uh, quite frankly, Carnegie Mellon did not do a lot to help its entrepreneurs, uh, you know, prior to 10 years ago. Uh, we always had great entrepreneurs, you know, people like Adobe was started by a, a um a CMU entrepreneur. Uh, the first four iPhones were developed by Matt Rogers at Apple. Then he went to create Nest Labs, which he sold to Google, right? And I could go on and on and on and tell you about great entrepreneurs. You know, Sun Microsystems, Vinod Kosla, and Andreas Bechtelsheim, right? CMU alum. But, but Carnegie Mellon um, did not open the doors and say, let me help you entrepreneurs. And, you know, I felt like we could change that. 
And, and so I created a five-year plan 10 years ago uh, and with the full understanding that if the five-year plan didn't work, then I would move on and do the next thing. Uh, but fortunately, the, the five-year plan worked and we, we got ourselves onto the map uh, the map being the rankings of, of top entrepreneurship schools. And, uh, you know, our goal is to, to shoot for the stars and try to be the top. So how has your background as an entrepreneur uh, helped you in, in, from the day-to-day standpoint? First of all, it helped you in terms of framing the issue, yeah. right? And um, but how does it help you day-to-day when you, you know, it seems like it would give you a pretty good advantage when you're talking to entrepreneurs and yeah. folks coming out of academia. Oh, absolutely. So, so I truly believe that entrepreneurs have to be customer first mentality, right? That, that we are in existence to serve customers and our great technology has, is not what's important. It's important that we have great technology so that we can do what we need to do, which is to provide great solutions to the problems of our customers. And so I, I was very fortunate to have a mentor named Don Jones. Uh, Don was another serial entrepreneur in robotics in, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, he created what was called the Don Jones Center for Entrepreneurship at, at Carnegie Mellon back in 1989 when I was a student. Uh, and I came under his tutelage and, and uh, he taught me an important lesson. Uh, in it, we call it the goodness factor. And he said, Dave, if you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, if you're bringing a new solution to the table to solve a customer's problem, it needs to be three times better than their current solutions or the alternatives, or it has to be three times cheaper or people won't pay attention and they won't switch. You know, fast forward to 2014 when Peter Thiel wrote zero to one and Ben Horowitz wrote hard thing about hard things. They said it needed to be 10 times better or 10 times cheaper because you know, with information ubiquity, the, the number of solutions out there has grown exponentially. So you have to even further, you know, differentiate yourself. So back to that original question, if, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to solve customers' problems and you have to solve them better and differently than anybody else. So that's how I approached building the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon. Who are our customers? What are their problems? And then how do we serve them better than what the alternatives that they have? I think that's a, a terrific focus area and something that probably would get lost within an academic institution if it weren't for somebody like yourself, making sure that it's brought to the front of the conversation. What? So the Swartz Center, founded by Jim Swartz, uh, Excel, mm-hmm. founder of, co-founder of uh, Excel Partners. What have you learned from Jim and what, what are you, what, what's his vision? Yeah, just a quick background on Jim. Um, you know, Jim was born in Western Pennsylvania, a little town called Coriopolis, just outside of Pittsburgh, up the Ohio River. Uh, he did his undergraduate at Harvard, where he was a football player. Uh, but then, when he graduated, uh, Carnegie Mellon and what what then was called the Graduate School of Industrial Administration gave him a scholarship, and uh, he was so grateful for that because he would not have been able to go to graduate school without that scholarship. Uh, the Graduate School of Industrial Administration is now the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon, uh, and uh, Jim Jim left Carnegie Mellon felt feeling incredibly equipped with a STEM-based business background education went to Wall Street, and then ultimately in 1982 founded Axel. 
And uh, obviously, Axel has become one of the, the, the great venture capital firms uh, that are out there. And for the, your listeners who don't know Axel, they were the first institutional money into Facebook, the first institutional money into Slack, and many, many others. Uh, so Jim, Jim always had a sweet spot and a soft spot in his heart for Carnegie Mellon. And when, when I came back to Carnegie Mellon 10 years ago, one of the first visits I made uh, was to Jim Schwartz. Uh, and, and, you know, I said to Jim, I said, look, I think we can make Carnegie Mellon much better. And there are two things that I think we need to do to start it. One was combine all of the entrepreneurial activities at Carnegie Mellon under one roof uh, so that we were all working together, getting the technical people and the business people and the design people all working together. And the second was we at that time were focused just on current students and faculty. And I wanted to open it up to our alums that were all over the world. And his immediate response was, Dave, that's what I've been telling them to do for years. And I said, well, well great. Uh, I'm glad we're on the same page. I said, will you fund us? And he said, of course I will. But you got to prove it to me first, right? <laughs> uh, so for the next uh, couple of years, we went about you know, executing that plan. Um, we brought three different um, entrepreneurial activities, one from engineering, one from computer science, one from the business school together under one roof. Uh, and then we opened up all of our sort of activities, our resources, our, our programs to alumni, uh, and we made some really great early progress. So in 2016, uh, Jim actually funded the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship to the tune of $30 million. Uh, $10 million of that was to build a world-class center. You've, you've visited us here, Tim, and you've seen it. It's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and then $20 million was to run the center in perpetuity. Uh, but Jim just didn't give his money. Uh, you know, he has given his advice and wisdom. And I can literally text Jim, you know, 24-7. He'll get back to me immediately. Um, he is a, you know, he, he is a straight shooter. If he thinks something's stupid, he'll say, that's stupid, Dave. And I'll say, thanks. I appreciate that. That'll help me, uh, you know, help, help uh, us, us sort of revisit the plan and, and figure out how to do it right. So so Jim is, uh, has been a wonderful benefactor for the Swartz Center, a wonderful benefactor for Carnegie Mellon, and a great mentor for me. It's having him as a major supporter, I'm sure, sure helps and is what kind of inspires both you and the entrepreneurs who go through the program. It gives us great credibility, great trust. You know, people know if Jim, Jim Swartz has invested in Carnegie Mellon and the Swartz Center, then it must be doing something right. Talk a little bit more about Carnegie Mellon and what really separates uh, CMU. They, uh, in terms of school, you, you often think of you know technology, Silicon Valley. You think of Stanford. You think of MIT. Right. Uh, but Carnegie Mellon is is right up there. And why is that? There, there, there are multiple ways to answer it, but let me give a, a, a brief history of time. Go, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking's here, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, Back in the 1950s, uh, the very first uh, commercial computer was put on Carnegie's Mellon's campus. And it's because uh, Herb Simon, um, who is a Nobel laureate in economics, and and, uh, Alan Newell, who was in uh, the Mellon College of Sciences back then, which is now the School of Computer Sciences, uh, were were using um, science and engineering to solve business problems. And so this computer was in the basement of the business school, and there was interdisciplinary collaboration going on between the scientists, the engineers, and the business thinkers of the day. 
And what came out of that was this concept that we all know today as artificial intelligence. And you know, Herb Simon won the Nobel Prize for, in, in part for the creation of this. Uh, Alan Newell won the Turing Award, which is the computer science equivalent of the Nobel Prize for his efforts in, in helping to, to create artificial intelligence. Now, for sure, there were other people that were involved. Marvin Minsky from MIT, for example, is also known as one of the fathers of artificial intelligence. But, but, but 70 years ago in the 1950s, um, the, the, the seeds were planted. And of course, it takes many decades to germinate those seeds over time as Moore's law took effect in sort of making computing faster as our ability to store more and more data became greater. And then we had the advent of cloud computing, you know, 15 years ago um, that sort of enabled artificial intelligence to mature and become part of our everyday life as it is. Now, along that journey across the 70 years, um, they started to use the concepts of artificial intelligence to build other new technologies, uh, robotics being one of them. And in the 1980s, Carnegie Mellon was the first university to establish a robotics program, the Robotics Institute. And then in the early 1990s, they created the National Robotics Engineering Consortium, right? And so uh, we, we've always been a, a, a leader there. And I think the seminal event in sort of the development of robotics, where I say where robotics became real, because before this point, we thought of lost in space, danger, danger, robot, right? Or or the Jetsons, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, that was all science f- fiction, science fantasy. But in 1979, I think robotics became real because we had a nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, um, where the, the reactors melted down and, and it, it was a very dangerous situation for human beings, not just human beings in the general area, but human beings that had to be at that plant and had to do the cleanup. And a professor at Carnegie Mellon named Red Whitaker had built a remote controlled robot that could go into dangerous environments. So this remote controlled robot was a key and critical factor in doing the nuclear cleanup that came with that meltdown, saving literally hundreds of, of human lives. So, so robotics became real in 79 and, and CMU became a leader over the next two decades. And that led in, in, in the early 2000s um, to, to the DARPA challenges around autonomous vehicles. Uh, DARPA, for, for those that aren't familiar with it, is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And in uh, 2005 and six, they did first a desert challenge and then an urban challenge. And Carnegie Mellon competed in both of those. And Red Whitaker, uh, who had done the Three Mile Island remote robot, was sort of the leader in, in pushing that agenda. Um, uh, in the first uh, desert challenge, Carnegie Mellon went the fastest and the farthest, but by a technicality, those you know, those guys over at Stanford actually won the first challenge, uh, which really just put a chip on the shoulder of our Carnegie Mellon guys. And then the next year with the Urban Challenge, which was much more difficult with many more obstacles, Carnegie Mellon blew the field away. So Carnegie Mellon took a leadership petition in autonomous vehicles, which today is Uber ATG, was founded by 40 Carnegie Mellon computer scientists, right? Aurora Innovations was founded by Chris Urmson, who was a member of that team who went to Google and founded Waymo. Argo AI was founded by a 
group of people that were on that original team. And truly, almost every autonomous vehicle company that's out there can trace their their heritage back to Carnegie Mellon in some way. So, so it's been this 70-year arc, Tim, that has included artificial intelligence, has included robotics, has included autonomous vehicles that has made Carnegie Mellon the special place that it is today. And not only are we creating amazing startups around these technologies, we're actually attracting all of the big tech companies from all over the world to come and be in Pittsburgh. So Google set up shop here in 2006. Uh, Microsoft has major operations here. Amazon has major operations here. Facebook built their own building here. Apple does lots of work here. And I could go on and on. All of those organizations have hundreds, if not thousands of engineers in, in the region uh, trying to get Carnegie Mellon talent to come to work for them. And nothing could be better that for, for the startup community than having high paying engineering jobs available to our risk takers who, if they take the risk and it doesn't work out, instead of waiting a year like they would have had to in Pittsburgh or Cincinnati or Cleveland to maybe find another tech job, they have a job the next day if they want it, right? And so that's allowed our entrepreneurs that are willing to push the envelope to, to, to have that safety net to let them you know, go after their dreams. First of all, thank you for the context. And it just seems like it's so inspiring. And that's what feeds potentially the new, the new students that, that brings them in is, is those sorts of stories. And it also gives you a sense of the arc, you know, to help you do a better job looking forward as well. It, it, you, you make a really good point. I say when people ask me what is special about Carnegie Mellon, of course, that history is special. But what that does is it attracts 3,000 of the smartest people in the world. And I mean from all over the world to come to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh right. every year. Right. And that that, re, you know, metaphorical renewable energy keeps priming the pump. Right. And, and the talent used to all leave Pittsburgh and go to the West Coast or go to the East Coast. But now we're retaining a lot of that talent here. And by the way, we don't mind where they go. We, we help them wherever they are. We, we build a, ca a, a campus in Silicon Valley. We have a campus in New York City. We want to help Carnegie Mellon entrepreneurs wherever they are. Any, any study I look at in terms of Silicon Valley developers and universities where they come from, it's usually four of the top uh, schools in California and then Carnegie Mellon. And then yeah. the next ones are you know, kind of way down the list. So it's amazing. And it's been pretty consistent, I think, through the years. Yeah. Quartz did a study, I think it was 2016 or 17. And th th I became aware of this statistic, you know, Cal Berkeley was number one. Stanford was number two. And that's just a size thing, right? Cal Berkeley is much bigger than Stanford. Carnegie Mellon was number three on that list of where engineers at Silicon Valley tech companies came from. Wow. What, what, what do you know about and what's the importance of the, the population of the graduate students, not just undergrad, but grad, you know, graduate degrees, masters, PhDs, et cetera? Yeah. So, so I get the question a lot, you know, what, what's the breakdown of, of where your entrepreneurs are? And so from just the student body alone, uh, two thirds of our entrepreneurs come from the graduate students and one third come from the undergraduates. And, and if you step back and, and look at the situation, it kind of makes a lot of sense, right? Graduate students have been out in the world, gotten some experience, and they're looking at their graduate degree as a career transformation step, right? So, so you know, they're ready 
and have the experience, have, have the motivation to potentially go start their own company. Undergraduates come here at 18 years old. They don't know what they don't know. They're brilliant, um, but this is a coming of age experience, right? And, and we actually encourage them not to start their own companies right away. If they want to, we're behind them. And, you know, there's always the Bill Gateses of the world and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world for sure. Uh, so we don't, we don't discourage them. But we say, hey, why don't you go to work for another startup, see what it's like, gain the wisdom and the experience by watching other people do it, and then start your own. So, so um, from a student perspective, two-thirds of our focus is on graduate students. But if you look at the whole picture by bringing alumni into the fray, it's really about two-thirds alumni, one-third students that we focus. That's, that's a great stat. Um, not surprising and, uh, really good, good to hear. And I'm sure listeners, there'll be listeners that'll be surprised by that. Let's talk a little bit more then about the, the kind of the startup scene in and around Carnegie Mellon. Uh, what are some of the successes and what are some of the successes we will be reading about in the near future? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, uh, two companies come to mind that that are probably at least people in the tech community have heard about and know about. Uh, one is Duolingo. Uh, mm-hmm. was started 10 years ago by Luis Fanon and Severn Hacker. Uh, they used artificial intelligence and A-B testing to do better language learning. Um, and now they are a publicly traded company. Um, they attracted capital from outside the region. Uh, Union Square from New York was the first check-in. Uh, uh, Kleiner Perkins uh, was the second and check in uh, Drive Capital uh, out of Columbus, who uh, has set up in the Midwest to focus on Midwest-oriented uh, technical companies, uh, you know, put a check in. Um, and so they, they've been uh, a company that's helped put uh, Carnegie Mellon on the map. When I'm comparing us to, to you know, Stanford or Harvard, I always joke and say, you know, Stanford has Google, Harvard has Facebook, Carnegie Mellon has you know, Duolingo is a candidate to, to sort of be on everybody's tongue and be a household name. Um, potentially a household name in the future, but a publicly traded company right now is Aurora Innovations. Aurora Innovations was started by Chris Ermson, who was part of that original DARPA autonomous vehicle challenge. Uh, Chris uh, uh, connected with uh, Sterling Anderson from Tesla Autopilot and Drew Bagnell from the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, to found Aurora. Aurora is now a publicly traded company that was led by a SPAC uh, that Reed Hoffman put together uh, back in uh, December of 2021. And they're sort of the leader out of the gate in autonomous vehicles uh, and and with a a special focus now on autonomous trucking. So Duolingo and and, and Aurora are names that, that a lot of people know but coming behind them, you know, if you look back at history, I mentioned Sun Microsystems and Adobe and Nest Labs, uh, a couple of companies that I think are, are, are really special. Uh, one's called Nimble.ai. It's uh, founded by Simon Kalush, uh, and they are reinventing uh, e-commerce uh, picking. Uh, their first uh, uh, product line is Robot as a Service, and they uh, re- charged by the pick with their robots and they can integrate into any e-commerce warehouse in a single day, which is an amazing feat. Mm. Uh, and their next generation product is a fulfillment as a service. So they're, they, they, they have a design of a, of a, of a, a warehouse that they believe is five to six times more efficient than the very best Amazon warehouse that's out there. So I think that's a, a really interesting mm. and cool company. Another um, is fifth season, 
uh, fifth season is fully automated indoor vertical farming. Um, and um, they, they've been very focused on the unit economic costs of delivering salad greens um, from the very beginning. Um, they're, they're set up their first, uh, their first manufacturing plant for food is in uh, the town of Braddock, uh, right next to uh, the Edgar Thompson Works of United States Steel. That, that was a, a plant that was built by Andrew Carnegie way back in the 1800s. Uh, so they're trying to revitalize neighborhoods uh, by employing local people in this factory of the future for the production of food. Wow. Yeah, those are some uh, compelling companies and the uh what i can't help thinking about is network effects yeah in terms of the people that work for those companies that are going to go on you got this nexus of activity how would you say the current environment is or the the environment going forward 10 years versus the last last 10 years in terms of that startup and entrepreneur community well you know tim and i think you understand this problem operating refinery out of of cincinnati and and you created centrifuge many years ago to help solve this problem we don't have enough native capital right there, there you know, there's not a, enough native capital in the midwest i think it's improved by you know activities like centrifuge by the folks like drive capital moving into the region but we we don't have enough native capital to fund all the innovation uh, that we have in, in the Western Pennsylvania region. Um, so we've had to work very, very hard this last decade to attract coastal capital, capital from the Bay Area, capital from New York City or Boston. And we've been able to do that. So, so that's been a big, a big sea change for us. But that means that some of the earliest stage ventures um, that are very, very promising uh, don't always get the attention of that coastal capital. The coastal capital likes to come in maybe at a seed round or a series A, but that pre-seed capital um, where we have the first, you know, 25 to 200 K is easy to get, but that there's that gap between maybe 250 and a million. And so we're working really, really hard to try to solve that problem right now. It would seem like some of the uh, Duolingo and Aurora team members who've had a chance to to exit maybe yeah. some of the best angel investors for the region. Absolutely. And, we, and we're taking a page out of the playbooks from other regions. Uh, we've created a angel syndicate called 99 Tartans, Tartans being the, mm-hmm. the mascot name. Of, our mascot's a Scotty dog, but the, the, the name is Tartans, right? And uh, so the this angel syndicate is is CMU alumni investing in CMU founders. Um, and in just the last two and a half years, we've invested in over 30 deals and over $5 million. So, uh, you know, that's a group that's stepping up to help, you know, fill that gap. And we're, we, you know, it's been so successful in its early days. We're hoping that we can grow this into a worldwide network of CMU alumni supporting CMU founders wherever they are, whether they're in India or China or in Europe or in Africa. You know, we're doing it right now in the United States, but our alumni go everywhere. They're from everywhere and they go everywhere. I think we have between 20 and 25,000 living alumni outside the United wow. States. Yeah, I'm sure that will go well. And that is a great way to, for university to stay connected to some of their, their best, most promising alumni who are, who are likely to be major donors in the future. Uh, yeah. And- well, let's, let's not forget, we have a, we, we have a, 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 a war for talent here in the United States mm-hmm. is, and I'm sure your portfolio companies have this problem. And we, we allow uh, 
some of the brightest students in the world to come from other countries. And then we don't make it welcome for them to stay here after they graduate. And we really need immigration policy to change to help keep that talent that comes to the United States to get educated here, to stay here and be the brain power for this next generation of, of companies that are going to, to take us into the next century. So what are some of the ways or some of the activities and events coming up for people to be, to get more involved and connected at CMU? Yeah, thank you for asking, Tim. The first one is VentureBridge. Uh, our VentureBridge program is a pre-seed investment program to our most promising alumni companies. We, we fund 10 to 15 of those companies per year. Uh, our current cohort has 12 companies. Uh, four of them are based in the Bay Area. Four of them are based in the New York City area. And four of them are based here in Pittsburgh. Uh, we're going to have a demo day. Uh, it'll be available streaming live. You can Find it on on the website cmu.edu slash short center. And uh, we also have uh, we, we try to bring the, the, the startup mojo to larger corporations through a program that we have called the Corporate Startup Lab. And on November 16th, um, we're having our Corporate Startup Lab Forum, um, where we get innovators from larger companies and startups to come together and share best practices to help our leading uh, large companies uh, you know, become more innovative. One of the companies that we're working with is in Cincinnati. It's Procter & Gamble, you know, one of the great consumer packaged goods companies of all time. And, you know, kudos to them. They're, 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 they're working hard to make sure that they stay on the innovation edge so that they can continue to grow uh, uh, Procter and & Gamble and, and continue to be a factor in, in the years to come. I'll be there. Uh, Great. So what, what uh, final messages would you have for entrepreneurs who are listening to Fast Frontiers about how to think about their business and the next frontier of innovation? When, when we have come up, uh, entrepreneurs or venture capitalists come to speak at Carnegie Mellon, we always save that that last question, which is, you know, if you could only give one piece of advice, and right. there's many pieces of advice that you could give, only one, uh, what would you give? So here, I'm going to eat my own dog food. Uh, network, network, network. And when you're done networking, network some more, because mm-hmm. this is still a world where who you know is more important than what you know. What you know is very, very important. But in the end of the day, decisions get made based upon trust and credibility. And the way that you build trust and credibility with customers, with suppliers, with investors, with employees, is get to know them and build that trust. So I think if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be successful, you need to turn yourself into an excellent networker. Great piece of advice. Still more true than ever, as you said. And despite technology, we be careful. It's a good caution to not get too dependent on it and to forget about networking. And after the last few years of COVID, we, we got to get back out and see people right. in real you life. You are so right, Tim. You are so right. Well, I look forward to seeing you again in person. Great. On Thank campus. You, and uh, if there's anything we can do for you or for any of your listeners, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. We will have all of Dave's contact information in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. Dave, great to have you on Fast Frontiers. Have a great day. Thank you, Tim. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Tim Kite, founder and CEO of Focus3, a firm that teaches elite training systems to develop leaders 
strengthen culture, and empower people. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis, audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, and our podcast platform is Casted.